a Passover for followers of Christ. A Passover for followers of Christ. Now, when you say the word or the you know, phrase Passover, there are two major associations that the average person will very likely have. The first is that the Passover is an Old Testament practice that was done away by Jesus and that it's irrelevant for New Testament believers. So that's assumption number one. That's boing, that's the first thing that's going to pop into people's minds. The second is that the Passover is a holiday or celebration limited to the Jewish people and really isn't meant for anyone outside that particular culture. So I put it to you that when you say the phrase Passover, I don't know if it just happens to pop up in your lunchtime conversation at work or at school, that's the sort of thing that people are going to have in their mind when you say the word Passover. So both of these assumptions are wrong. The truth is that Jesus himself put in place the New Testament, Passover, a new Passover service for his followers, which is the, what the title is all about, a Passover for followers of Christ. All right, Jesus changed the practices of the Old Testament of the Old Testament Passover service and gave us a new purpose, a new purpose for observing the Passover. His reorientation of the Passover focuses our attention on the game-changing event of his own sacrificial death. A death, burial, and resurrection with spiritual implications that are in play even today. So the Passover is for today, and it is for followers of Christ. So followers of Jesus Christ who are alive in 2016 do not base their observance of Passover on the Exodus or the Deuteronomy model. These are two things that I'm going to, I'm going to elaborate on. But we don't base our Passover observance and what we do on Exodus or Deuteronomy or what we read there about them. It's good to know. It's good information to know, but that is not the basis of our observance. We follow Christ's own example and Christ's own instructions for what we do at Passover and what we teach about its spiritual implications. The Passover described in Exodus and uh, elaborated somewhat in Deuteronomy has been fundamentally altered. So it's not the same thing. So if someone were to come and people do this, and they say, oh, you're just going back to the Old Testament. You, you ridiculous person. And how do you pick and choose what do you want out of the Old Testament? And you've heard all that stuff, right? That's not where we're informed about the Passover. It's good background information. But the Passover described in Exodus and Deuteronomy has been fundamentally altered by the historic reality of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death. 
As I said, it's a game-changing event. He is our Passover lamb. He is our high priest of a new and better covenant. When Jesus and his disciples gathered for that final Passover, and it was, in many ways, the final Passover. It was the last of the Old Testament Passovers to be kept, but there was a bit of overlap because at the same time, he was doing something new and introducing something completely new and giving it a whole new spiritual dimension and a whole new outlook for those who would follow. But when they gathered together for that final Passover, which some people call the Last Supper, not my favorite phrase, but, well, they were sharing a meal. They were having a meal, okay? And it was based loosely on Exodus and the description that we have of the Passover from the book of Exodus. Okay, it also had additional elements that came from Deuteronomy. All right? I'm just kind of keeping it narrow. I'm simplifying. I know there's, there's a lot of detail in there. But just to keep it simple, we're talking about Exodus, Deuteronomy, some basic guidelines, if you will, for the Passover that come f- from the Old Testament. All right? So they were having this meal. They had the roasted lamb. They were meeting in Jerusalem, as you would find in Deuteronomy, the place that God chose to put his name. And it was at this evening meal that... Christ put new practices forth, literally put them on the table, and outlined a whole new purpose and outlook on Passover. I mentioned Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then we also have the New Covenant. So these, I'm going to call them models for Passover, if you will. All right, so bear with me. Uh, It's just my way of organizing the material. Let's start with the Exodus model for Passover. Okay? And you might say, well, why are we doing that? You just told us that that's not where we get our information from. Well, it's good background knowledge because people will come at you and say, well, why are you doing all that stuff from the Old Testament? All right, well, let's make sure that we know what's, what's being said and what's not being said. The Exodus model for Passover. That's the first one that we'll deal with. The Passover was put in place at the beginning of Israel's release from Egypt. Okay? And hopefully everybody is familiar with the storyline of Israel's release from Egypt. It's something that we cover with the kids. It's kind of your your basic Sabbath school material. Uh, They like to go through that. Uh, For those of us who came along later on the scene, like myself, you know, 25, I was a little old for Sabbath school. I had to learn it all myself. But the Passover was put in place at the beginning of Israel's release from Egypt. And it's the model. It's the basic model for uh, the Jewish people. Uh, They base their Passover observance on the Exodus model. Okay? Now, with that said, they have certainly added plenty of of their own non-biblical traditions and you know, kind of layered them on top so that what you see as the Passover observance now with all its 
candles and special plates and special foods and all that kind of stuff. Those are traditions of men, okay? The cedar plate and all that kind of stuff. And some people really get into that kind of stuff. But it, it, that's a tradition of a group of people called the Jews. It's not biblical. They just have it. They just came up with this stuff. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or whatever. Although I would say that it does obscure, in, for many people, the true meaning of the Passover. Okay? For, for them, for the Jewish people that I was referencing, the Passover is an annual memorial of their own national and cultural history. That's, I think that's their main focus. I can't speak for all people, but that's what I see, that's what I observe as an outsider, that it is an annual memorial of their own national and cultural history. To understand the roots of the Exodus model for Passover, we have to go back to Abraham, all the way back to the very beginning to Abraham. Let's do that. Turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. The call of Abraham. That's the little headliner that I have in my Bible. I'm sure you have something similar to that in yours. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Key verse, so Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he's being called out from a culture and a place. Most of us know it as uh, the Babylonian culture. He's being called out of this and asked, okay, let's go, asked by God to go somewhere else. We're going to draw you out. We're going to go somewhere else. I'm going to do all this really cool stuff. God appears to this man named Abram with a purpose. And the purpose that he had was to create a nation, among other purposes. But I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I just read that. <clears throat> Not just any old nation. There were plenty of nations already. You know, it, That's all that was required. That was all that God was interested in. He, he could have just taken one off the shelf. God was creating a nation that would be separate from the many other nations of the world. It would be separate and distinct. The nation would be created by God to perform certain functions. I'm not going to go, I don't have, I don't have a you know, full list of all the multi-multi functions. I'm just going to focus on a couple, just to give you the idea. Certain functions, for example, to receive and preserve his commandments and his word. One of the primary functions of the nation of Israel. Um, his commandments, his laws, his statutes, and to preserve them and, and to pass them along to future generations. 
I think they also served a purpose of providing a suitable culture into which the Christ, the Messiah, could be born. I think it would have been very difficult for the whole thing to work out if the Messiah were born into some bizarre pagan cannibal culture. So, in a sense, Israel provided this culture, this environment into which the Messiah could be born and could fulfill his purpose. That's a different subject, but the point is that the nation was created by God to be separate and distinct, and it had a purpose in God's overarching plan. Again, that's a whole other subject. But let's go back to Genesis, and let's take a couple of chapters forward to Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girishites, and Jebusites. All these people, generally known as Canaan, and this area that we know as Israel or Palestine or whatever. He's giving them a promise. Okay, I'm going to make you a nation and I'm going to put you in a land. And this is the land I'm going to give you. A nation needs land, does it not? Let's take a look at, just back up a little bit, Genesis 15 verses 13 and 14. He also gave them part of a promise that was kind of not so great, at least not from my perspective. Um, Verses 13 and 14, Then the Lord said to him, to Abram, and this was taking place while they were going through this process of uh, ratifying this agreement between the two of them. Okay, And in the process of it, Abraham kind of went into a trance, if you will. He went into a deep sleep. It says, Abraham fell into a deep sleep with a thick and dreadful darkness over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So before all this good stuff was going to happen, God foretold that these people, this nation that he was creating, was going to be enslaved. You know that phrase, God works in mysterious ways, right? (laughs) That's one of them. It's not how I would have planned things out, but it makes sense when you see the plan through, of course. The rest of the book of Genesis, we're not going to read that, thankfully, The rest of the book of Genesis details that immediate family of Abraham. His sons, his grandsons, then the 12 great-grandsons, and also how they ended up in Egypt, which led to their enslavement there. So there's this 400-year prophecy, which is fulfilled. Okay, I know I'm zipping over a lot of biblical storyline. But this 400-year prophecy is fulfilled through Moses. Well, Moses is commissioned by God to be God's middleman, if you will, a mediator. 
So he's this middleman between God and Israel in this process that God foretold where he would bring them out and give them this land. All right? And Exodus chapters 11, or sorry, 1 through 11 walk us through this commission of Moses and then God's very, very intense judgment of Egypt, which he, he prophesied earlier. A judgment which culminated, reached its peak in the tenth plague, which was a plague of death to every firstborn child in the land. Let's go to Exodus 12. So the Exodus Passover model gets put into place because this tenth plague is coming upon them. That's the purpose, if you will, the practical boots-on-the-ground purpose for the Exodus Passover model. And let's go through that just quickly, if you will. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 6. Okay. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, and that's interesting because this is kind of like the first instructions that God gives to what's going to become the Levitical priesthood, Aaron, the first formal instructions on how to observe these special days, how to worship God. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. So he's setting the calendar for them, kind of establishing them and rooting them in time. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. The key thing that we pick up from these verses is a lamb without blemish is to be set aside. A lamb without blemish. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood... So they're slaying this lamb. They're going to they're going to bleed it out, and then they're going to you know cook it as a meal. But in verse seven, they are to take some of the blood of this lamb and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So this is a very dramatic, real thing that they're doing. They're taking real blood and they're putting it on real doorposts there to smear the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their dwellings. Verses 8 and 9. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast, unleavened bread. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Okay, so the people roast and eat the lamb. Verses 10 through 14, do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak 
tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, ready to go. I mean, we might say nowadays, you know, with your suitcase packed, right, with your airline tickets in hand, or however you're traveling, with your car loaded up with gas or whatever, ready to go. Eat this meal, ready to go, okay? Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So there was the immediate concern of taking care of putting the blood over their doorposts on this day when the destroyer would pass over, but it was also something that they were to do in the future and keep doing each year, right, as a festival to the Lord. Verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. So the lamb is called the Passover. The lamb is your Passover here. Okay, the Passover lamb. Verses 22 through 28. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on the both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our houses when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and they worshipped. Verse 28, key phrase, then the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. I say that's a key phrase because they could have just sat there and listened to it all and said, yeah, cool, I get the concept. Don't know about the whole blood thing, but I'm cool with the concept. No, they actually went out and did it. Right? Israel trusted God. He gave them some pretty good reasons to trust him. They'd seen some pretty amazing stuff happen. They believed God, and because they believed, they did what God asked them to do. Key concept. I could make a whole sermon out of that. <laughs> Okay, I mentioned the Deuteronomy model for Passover. Okay, the Deuteronomy model for Passover. Well, the people were drawn out of Egypt, drawn out of their slavery. Okay, and there was some exciting stuff along the way. Galloping horses and rushing waters and all kinds of stuff like that. People came to Mount Sinai. They came to the mountain. God was there. And he made an additional covenant which, with, which was now the nation of Israel. So he'd made this covenant with Abraham before. 
Okay, he made this deal with Abraham. And now he's making an additional covenant with the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And this covenant was going to be somewhat different from the covenant that he made with Abraham. Okay? That covenant that he made with Abraham is discussed very fully in the New Testament. Paul goes through that in great detail. Covenant of kind of like a man-to-man, if you will, well, God-to-man <laughs> covenant. And uh, the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai was a little different. and had some different features to it. For one thing, it was what I'm, I'm going to call a national covenant. God's covenant with an entire nation of people. Okay? And it was based on the model of a king, if you will, which would be God. Okay? And subjects, who would be Israel. Okay? God the king had drawn them out of or won them from the king of Egypt and, you know, kind of thrashed them. So God was the conquering king. He had these subjects now, Israel. So there's a king, there's subjects with laws to govern them. His commandments, laws, statutes, and judgments. And the terms of the covenant, I know I'm simplifying, the terms of the covenant were you, the subjects, obey me, Yahweh, your king, You subjects obey me, your king, and you live within the bounds of my laws, and I will protect and bless you. If you, subjects, refuse to obey me, then you will be punished. I will not protect you, and I will not bless you. Included in the covenant Mount Sinai, was a modification for instructions for observing the Passover. The modification was along national lines as well. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 7. Speaking through the mediator Moses, God says, Observe the month of Aviv, this first month, and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, He brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd, at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days." Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the morning of the first day remain, on the evening of the first day remain until the morning. Sorry. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling place for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning return to your tents. So the change was given when Israel, and and Deuteronomy is when Israel's right there on the border. They're ready to pour into the land of Canaan, but they're stopped at the border and they go through this 
basically long sermon from Moses, we know as Deuteronomy, the second reading of the law. So they're ready, poised on the borders of Canaan, ready to take possession of the promised land and truly become a nation on the world stage and to reflect their status as a full-fledged nation with a king, laws, and now actual territory, the Passover was changed as well. It was now to be celebrated in a central location for the entire nation. That central location was to be decided upon by God. First it was Shiloh uh, in the territory of Ephraim, I think, yeah, and then later Jerusalem and stayed at Jerusalem. So we've got the Exodus model for Passover, then we've got the Deuteronomy model for Passover, which kind of built on that or changed it a little bit. Now we've got the New Covenant model for Passover. This is the one that's really important. The final mode for Passover is the New Covenant Passover. This model, the New Covenant Passover, is a further modification of the original Passover. The modifications were made to reflect changes in how God was dealing with humanity. Some elements were added to the Passover, and some elements were removed. God's plan and purpose had moved forward. The Christ had come. God would no longer restrict his work to Israel only. Just a couple among many, but those are pretty fundamental changes. So these modifications that I'm referring to were put in place, but they were not put in place by people who said, oh, we need to do something to reflect these changes. It wasn't put in place by a church. The modifications to the Passover that I'm calling the New Covenant Passover were put in place by Jesus Christ himself. As he and his disciples were eating that final Passover, a Passover meal kind of on the old structure, Jesus went through the modifications with them. And he did it in person, and then the disciples recorded it and passed on his New Covenant changes, if you will, for us today, all the way down to 2016. We have additional spiritual insights added later by the apostles, for example, and we have some of those in the letters to the churches. But the pattern for Passover observance followed the pattern Jesus put in place. And this is a concept that is important if you hearken back to my original comments when people say, oh, that Passover... You're just, you just you want to be a Jew, or you want to go back to the Old Testament? Well, here's your answer, folks. Nuh-uh. That's not what we're talking about. The pattern for Passover observance followed the pattern Jesus put in place. Turn to Luke 22. I'm going to start off with a problem. <laughs> I've been trying to keep it really straightforward, but I've got to start off with a problem. I have to have a conundrum once in a while. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. What? What what does that mean? Okay. The Passover is separate 
and distinct from the days of unleavened bread. Those are they're two separate days, two separate events, two separate meanings, whole different sets of implications. Let me explain. Because we just read something. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover. And today, people still do that same thing. They mush the two together, okay? Because these two days of special observance are back-to-back, if you will, they tend to get mushed together, okay? With most people considering the Passover and the days of unleavened bread to be kind of a single unit, right? And thinking of uh, baptism, it's been kind of on my mind, as I mentioned, it's much the same as uh, the way that baptism and the laying on of hands get mushed together, as if they're a single unit, right? But they're not. In both cases, the two are separate and distinct functions with separate and distinct meanings and implications. Let's go quickly back to Leviticus. Hold your place in Luke, because we'll come back and end there. Uh, Leviticus 23. Just a quick jog back into Leviticus. Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord, and on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. We're talking about two separate and distinct events, back-to-back, and closely related, very closely related, but two separate and distinct events. At the Exodus Passover, that original Passover, the people were first spared from death. As the destroyer went over, they were spared from death because they had smeared the blood of the slain lamb over their doorways. So that was the first thing that happened. They were saved from death. Or saved from this destroyer angel. Then after that, during the days of unleavened bread, they were drawn out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. Okay? Led into a new way of living before God. Even back then, they were drawn out, brought to this new way of living. That's what Sinai was all about, the laws, God's instruction. It's a new way to live. And they were set apart by God for a special purpose. Whether they did that properly or not is another issue, but they were set apart for a special purpose. That relationship of Passover to unleavened bread is with us today. We still have that relationship between the two days. The two are separate, but related. Okay, so they're, I said that backwards. They're related, but still separate and distinct in meaning. They parallel the relationship between justification and salvation. Another parallel I can make among many. They parallel the relationship between justification and salvation. Again, two separate and distinct events. When you accept Christ as your personal Savior, you are justified. 
okay, redeemed from the death penalty for sin that is hanging over you. Then you are released from bondage to sin so that you may live that way no longer, and you are set apart by God. And that's the process that you're in right now. You're justified, and that's great. Then you're in the process of being saved. We, I went through that, you know, in those sermons about salvation. And you're released from your bondage to sin as you follow God's Holy Spirit, which is in you through the laying on of hands, so that you live that way no longer and you are set apart. And the scriptures would say sanctified. You're set apart by God. So there's this tendency to put the two together, you know, People do it with justification and salvation. They kind of mush them together. They do it with baptism and the laying on the hands. They want to put them together as a single unit. Right? Passover days of unleavened bread. We, we actually do the same thing ourselves. You know, We do the same thing at the Feast of Tabernacles, if you think about it. Right? Um, we speak of the eighth day, the final day, the final holy day in the year, as if it were part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? We, why do we do that? Well, it's kind of like mental shorthand. Oh, I'm going to the feast. Yeah, yeah, but the feast ends, and then you have a final holy day at the end of the feast, which is not the Feast of Tabernacles, is it? No, it's a separate and distinct, and we know very well from listening to the sermons on that very special day, it has a very special distinct and separate meaning from the Feast of Tabernacles. So we do the same thing. So it's not just that, you know, these silly old Jewish people, they were just, they couldn't figure things out. We do the same thing. We mush them together. But we really should be aware in our minds that we're talking about separate steps, separate stages in God's plan of salvation. Okay? Well, let's get back to the New Covenant model. Back in Luke 22. I held my place. I don't know if you did, but boom, I'm back there in Luke 22. And let's take a look at the new covenant model being put into place. All right? Luke 22, verse 7, is where we'll pick up. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Again, we're dealing with that same idea there where the two are being mushed together, the unleavened bread and the Passover. You know, for them it was all... The Passover festival or, or whatever, they're putting them together, all right? But we're talking about two separate events, and we're focusing on Passover right now, okay? The Passover would begin that evening, okay? So Jesus would have given them the instructions that follow in the, in the next verses, which we'll look at. He would have been giving them instructions on, you know, setting up for the Passover during the day, maybe the morning, maybe the afternoon, on the 13th of, of Eve, Okay? Then at sundown, the Passover began, the 14th of Aviv, the evening when the Passover lamb was to be slain, just like we read about in Exodus. Let's read verses 8 through 16. Then Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare? Sorry, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, 
make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus clearly indicates, I think this was very obvious, this is a Passover service. <laughs> no more complicated than that. That's, a, that's my main takeaway from those verses for now. Jesus clearly indicates that what they were preparing for and to be participating in is a Passover. Let's read verses 17 through 20. So after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus put in place, very short, very succinct, if you will, and there are other accounts in the parallel Gospels, but Jesus put in place a new Passover service. The roasted lamb and the bitter herbs were replaced with bread and wine. And it makes sense. Sacrificing the life of a lamb as a substitute for our own life was no longer necessary. Why? And this is a point that is applicable to all the holy days, all the, all the sacrifices and that. Why? Why is it no longer necessary? The sacrifice of Jesus' own perfect and unblemished life would from that point forward be the only sacrifice necessary. As we read in Hebrews, and you can read it on your own, it would take place only once, but be applicable for all people for all time. So the lamb was yesterday's news because the real deal had happened. The role of the lamb in each model of Passover is, is worthy of a little bit of comment here. We've got the what I've, I've called the Exodus Passover, if you will, where the slaying of the lamb was so the, the angel of death or the destroyer would pass over them. The Deuteronomy Passover, the slaying of the lamb, was done as a memorial. A memorial for the people to remember the Exodus Passover. So they could look back and remember, God has done this wonderful thing for you, and it's a memorial. Looking back to that amazing event that took place at that very first Passover. So that's the Exodus Passover. Then you've got the Deuteronomy Passover. And then something really significant happens. 
I'm going to call this the real, real, real Passover. <laughs> Making stuff up, but yeah. Jesus is sacrificed as our Passover. This is the game changer. The first two Passover models were only symbolic. The death of a mere lamb could not really pay the price for the life of a human being. Okay? Animal lives were clearly not on the same level as human lives. And again, the book of Hebrews goes through this in great detail, and I recommend that you take a look at that. Okay? The blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never do what needs to be done. Again, Hebrews goes through that in great detail. The lamb, this Passover lamb, was only a placeholder, if you will. It was only a placeholder for the real death that would happen at a future time. Going, you know, if you're thinking from the vantage point of being there in Israel, in Egypt, okay, it was looking forward to something that would take place far in the future, okay? And that future event was Jesus' death. It was a real death. It was not a symbol or a sign of something yet to come. It was a real death of a, that had real meaning in human history. The New Covenant Passover. So we looked at the Exodus Passover, the Deuteronomy Passover, and I'm going to call it, I don't know, you could call it many different things, but Jesus as our Passover. And the New Covenant Passover. So Jesus set these things for us to do in place as the real, real Passover was happening. You know, kind of, he had to do it before he died. So the New Covenant Passover. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Good place to to be. Round out the discussion of the New Covenant Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. I've said this. Now we can quote it. Paul talking here of the, the, whole, the whole deal, the days of unleavened bread and the Passover. says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, for you really are. The key phrase I want to focus in on here is, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover. His life. And now that the real thing has happened in actual human history, we don't need a symbol that looks forward to it anymore. The lamb, a symbolic or sacrificial lamb, is no longer necessary. Therefore, a change was made in the observance of the Passover because of real things that had happened in real human history. And Jesus' own words, we read them, Jesus' own words put into place new symbols for the Passover of bread and wine. His body, his blood. And from that point forward, the Passover is performed as a memorial of Jesus' death. So it's fundamentally altered, no longer looking back at that Passover from Exodus when the nation was led out of Egypt, 
The Passover is now a memorial of Jesus' death. Do this in remembrance of me. Looking back now, of course, we are looking back at Jesus' death, something that happened in human history, and we do this as a memorial of his death. So the Passover has been changed. Improved, as again the book of Hebrews would say, better covenant, better promises, a better Passover, if you will. It's been changed to reflect how God's plan has moved forward, if you will. So putting Jesus' changes into practice. We're in Corinthians. Flip over to chapter 11. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's read verses 20 through 22. Paul here is he's in corrective mode. But we're going to jump in in the middle of it and pick up something interesting here. Verses 20 through 22. So then, Paul speaking here to a church in Corinth, an interesting church because these were not Jewish people. These were Greek people. They had no background that went back to the Exodus in Israel, uh, I mean in, e in Egypt. So in verse 20, he says, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The old Passover might be a better translation there. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. There was stuff going on in Corinth. They were having a big old feast. Rich people had more food than poor people, and they were making the poor people kind of eat in the broom closet or whatever they were doing. And kind of, you know, establishing a pecking order. And Paul said, enough! This is not what the Passover is all about. Let's read verses 33 and 34. Skipping ahead. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So we no longer have a meal during the ceremony. The meal is no longer necessary, if you think about it, because there's no lamb. There's no lamb to be slain. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We don't need a lamb to look forward to a future event. It's happened. There's no lamb. No need for a meal. Let's drop down. Actually, we'll back up a little bit. Um, verses 23 through 25. Talking about the Passover to this church in Corinth. Again, not a group of people who were Jewish. They had no reason to commemorate the saving of Israel out of Egypt. It was none of their business. They didn't mean anything to them. They were Greeks. But the Passover meant something for them. And Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is teaching them to follow the pattern that Christ established of taking bread and wine. And he teaches them to keep it when? He says, on the same night. On the same night he was betrayed. So Paul is teaching them to follow this pattern that Christ has established of taking bread and wine, and he teaches them to keep it on the same night, not some different day, not any time you jolly well please. Well, I'd like to keep the, I'd like to do that every day or every week or every Wednesday or every Thursday, or not at all, which is exactly what people do. But on that same night, Jesus was betrayed, okay? the evening of the 14th of Aviv. Also notice that Paul was teaching the new Passover model, how to observe the Passover, again, to these people who were not Jews. But he was teaching them the Passover. What meaning would it have for them if it was not the new covenant Passover? None. None, I don't think. The new covenant Passover model is for followers of Christ. It is not a Jewish ceremony. I don't have anything against, you know, what Jewish people do. I, I think they've missed the boat. But it's important for the people of God to recognize and realize this is not something we do that's kind of like hearkening back to this national cultural day for the Jewish people. That has nothing to do with what we do. That is not our purpose. That is not our point. It's interesting, and it has some spiritual insight that we can get from the whole concept of God's salvation from slavery and so forth. But the meaning and purpose of it that we have and that we understand, it's ours. Now, in keeping that desire, in keeping with that desire to follow Jesus' own pattern, we also include um, ceremonial foot washing, which you can read about in John 13 verses 1 through 17. And we'll go over that. I know we're going to do it during the Passover. But this was also a new element introduced by Christ. There's no foot washing in the Exodus or Deuteronomy models. Okay? Just like there's no wine in either of those models either, if you think about it. What Jesus was introducing was new stuff. Same day, same principles in in, in a sense of salvation, justification, and being brought into a new life, but meant for you. And they've been put in place by God, made flesh, namely, Jesus Christ. I, don't, I can't cite an authority more authoritative than that. The Passover. Drawing to a close here. The Passover is not an Old Testament ceremony. And as you can see, I hope, it is thoroughly New Testament in how it is to be observed and its spiritual significance for the followers of Christ. Neither is it a national or cultural celebration of the Jewish people. The meaning of the day has been changed by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Passover is now a remembrance of the personal redemption of each and every person who has become a disciple of Christ. Those who follow Christ. The Lamb of the Exodus and the Deuteronomy Passover, again, only looked forward in anticipation, hope, to the actual sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That Lamb has come. It's done. It's part of human history now. It happened. A real event in the space-time continuum. And that lamb was and is, because he lives now, Jesus Christ. And he gave us a new way of observing the Passover. It's 100% biblical, and it's ours. It's ours as a memorial to remember always the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 